Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy. I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the sentient tool that helps him, Duncan Nickel. Sentient tool, Duncan, that is your most scathing opener yet. Uh, are you doing okay? Have you had a hard couple of weeks? Oh, I was just trying to, working, trying to think one that maybe worked into the, like, the breath magic of Warbreaker. But in the end, I was just like, no, this is an opportunity. I will take this one. Um, well, Duncan taking nothing but self-inflicted blows so far this episode. But don't worry, Duncan, I'll give you some non-self-inflicted blows later. It'll balance it out, okay? What? You're going to inflict blows on me? So, oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. See, people, I have a theory that Geordie maybe uh, didn't like my pick this week as much as I thought <laughs> So, besides the bit Warbreaker we're going to get to, Geordie, what else have you been done? We've had a bit of a longer break, everyone. Yes, um, we have. For those that have seen it, we put out a study in Emerald as a little stopgap bonus episode. If you haven't mm. listened to it, please go back. It's a great little one. Yeah, it's a good episode. It's a good story. It is. Short, it is. sweet, to the point. Yeah, oh, yeah. Not like this book. <laughs> Again, we'll get into that more later. Later, yeah, later. This is criticism time. This is Duncan. Where did you go? What have you been doing? Well, uh, for those that follow us on Instagram, you'll know that I've been down in Cornwall, um, and I've mostly been sitting on a beach reading books. So, mm. other than this story from this week, I also read another book by Brandon Sanderson, Alloy of Law, which is the fourth book in Mistborn. First book in Mistborn Era 2, 12th book in the Cosmere. It, it's like the, you can actually, it's like the MCU. It's, but what it was, it was a very interesting book. It's a very different direction to anything I read by Brandon Sanderson. Um, because it's sort of like the legend of Korra to like Avatar The Last Airbender. It's like sure, you have sure. Mistborn, which is the fantasy medieval magic setting. And then um, Era 2 is like, okay, we're going to jump 300 years. We're in our sort of industrial revolution. It's the Wild West. All the magic mm. system stays the same. But now, instead of following, like, the legendary hero, you're just following, mm-hmm. like, uh, a sheriff out in the roughs. And it's such a such a gear change. It's very that different, but, it's, but it is very good, I think, in its own right. It, it does what it's out to do. It does it well. And it does it in half the length of any of the other Mistborn books. So <laughs> I was quite a fan. He's um, learning. Shooting over some of the other ones, I read um, Massacre of All Mankind, uh, another follow-up to H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Mm. I'm just in that zone. Um, fun for it was, I'm not a big fan of Stephen Baxter. I haven't really read a lot of his sort of original works. Mm-hmm. I'm still very much kind of mut- neutral on him, um, but I, I do want to read some, maybe some of his other stuff. So, you know, it's clearly the right side of neutral that I was intrigued. So he's the fellow who's done the H.G. Wells books? He did, uh, obviously he did the Massacre of All Mankind and he did the Time Ship, which is the follow-up to the Time Machine. However, the H.G. Ah, uh, Wells is now in public domain. So I think there's mm. like a follow-up to the Isle of Dr. Monroe called The City of Dr. Monroe, which is Monroe. like another completely different author. Uh, Stephen Baxter has the prestige of being the only one formally endorsed by the H.G. Um, Wells estate. Ah, sure. So... He's got that. Again, wasn't bad. I was just, I ended up quite mellow by the end of it. Um, and that's basically it. I spent a lot of time on the beach, walking around some lovely old buildings, eating mm. an awful lot of pasties and cream teas. <laughs> My ideal holiday. How have you been, Geordie? Uh, I've been doing quite well, Duncan. I was also on holiday instead of going south 
I went north. Uh, I did a lot of hiking. I was walking the West Highland Way, so over the course of about uh, five or six days, depending on how you counted, I walked 75 miles over, you know, hills and glens and, uh, and Rannoch Moor. Uh, it was very intense. It was very rewarding. Uh, there are some very hard spots. My feet eventually recovered from it. Uh, I have a lot more respect for Sam and Frodo after <laughs> that. Uh, after that excursion, you know, I, I I also that being said, one of the books I read after my break, after I finished Warbreaker, is I started reading um, Band of Brothers, the historical um, the historical account of Easy Company, and they're like. At the end of their basic training, they hiked 118 miles in 72 hours, and I'm like, oh, okay, sure, so maybe it's not that bad, you know, I wasn't <laughs> carrying a bazooka at the time, um, but I had really, really rewarding time, I met some very lovely people on the way, uh, I fell in with some nice hikers, uh, especially a good, f- a, a now quite close friend from Quebec, Anne-Marie, and, um, a very lost German fellow called Thomas, so I helped find Fort William. So, lots of nice adventures. And on the way, I had my audiobooks going. I decided that I would start Warbreaker when I started to walk. And then that would see me through to the end. I would see how much of it I could do during the hike. Uh, except I didn't quite end up doing that. Because on the bus there, I got bored. And I was like, I want to start reading something. But I don't want to start Warbreaker until they do the walk, because I already made that promise to myself. So instead, I listened to one of the Saxon stories by, um... Bernard Cornwell. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Duncan. I went blank there. I keep going blank in his name. Uh, by Bernard Cornwell. Um, it was very Cornwell. good. Cornwell! Oh, wow, it's Duncan's turn to, uh, <laughs> to correct me. Um, uh, it was extremely good, and then I read a second one. <laughs> uh, I read two in a row, and I, I had no regrets about delaying reading Warbreaker, um, and then I read Warbreaker, and we shall discuss it later, and then I read No Country for Old Men, uh, out of nowhere, it just wow. suddenly had the urge. That is, that is, there's some diversity there, mate. I'm mm, interested, mm. what were the two Saxon stories you read? I believe you've already read the first two or the first three? That's right, so I did three and four, I did, um, Sword Song is the fourth one, that's the most recent, and the third one is, uh... Laws of the North. Lords of the North, that's right. Yeah, they were pretty good. They were, good. They were very good, actually. What was um, your the interesting opinion? thing about the fourth one yeah. is that it feels the least historically significant of them. Thank like, you. Yes. <laughs> this is why I, I, I told you when we spoke about this previously, like, you get less historical events later on, and Sword Song was the first one that I was like, oh. Yeah. Like, no spoilers, because it's about a thing that happened a thousand years ago. But, like, they capture London in it at, like, a third of the way through, and that's the big historical event. Like, that's really important to the reign of Alfred. And and then it's just like, okay, so what's Ultrid going to do now? He's going to have his own little adventures. And yeah, again... Pretty good book, though. The, good it is a, a pretty good book, and the books do are continue to be really rather good, but I definitely feel that that becomes more the standard. It's like, you'll have a historical thing but then our main character does need to go off and have just like its own little quest um i think it's mainly because when i first read them i think it was only a trilogy when i started Mm. so i went into it thinking this is a trilogy and thinking that this would be a complete three book story so when i read saw song i was like 
Oh, weren't we kind of done? You could have just wrapped it up, mate. But I'm very glad he didn't. It's, it's a great mm. series and does continue to be very good. And some, some of the later books, I think, is actually maybe overshadows all of the early ones. So look forward to that. I'm looking forward to that because I'm definitely going to read them. How many are there? Like seven? Uh, seven and counting, maybe. I, I don't know. If you told me there were nine, I'd probably believe you. Mm, mm. More. Uh, anyway, No Country of Men. It was actually only okay. Like, that really surprised me. I thought it would be a lot better than it was. The actual prose and dialogue is, like, phenomenal. It's, like, really amazing. And then it just goes on these rants. Like, don't have you ever seen the movie No Country of Men? Um, I have not, but I'm aware of it. Yeah, so at the end, there's this very famous, rather anticlimactic big speech which one of the characters gives. It's very, like, philosophical and dark. And then the movie just sort of ends. And the book is full of those moments of just one character giving a monologue, except none of them are as good as that. And mostly they're just about complaining about the youth and about how things used to be better in the 50s. And, like, the conviction that society is getting worse, but neither the author nor the character are interested in investigating why they think it's getting worse. They just want to say it's getting worse and I'm grumpy about it. And um, it's it's it was way more I don't know how to put this. It was way more baby boomerish than I was expecting. Basically, you thought it might be a kind of a, a deep analysis, like no, this is why I feel things were better in my youth, more so than just because it was my youth. Or yeah, exactly. I always like, feel there's, there's the two ways where there's a bit where a guy says like you know police didn't used to be like this when I was young, and I'm like yes, they fucking did. You you grew up in the fifties, apparently. No wait, you you grew up in the forties, so you saw the civil rights movement happen. And the fact that you don't acknowledge that is like staggeringly and very noticeable. I think there's kind of two ways that I'd always be interested in that topic. Either someone trying to make the argument and the breakdown of why it's true. Mm-hmm. Um which often I find can be well it's true for certain groups in society. Mm-hmm. Um it's often the only way you could ever argue it. Or mm-hmm. when someone tries to break down why people feel that way, which yeah. is probably the most interesting point. And I take it it doesn't really go down that route. It could do. Like, it's it's from it's from a character whose perspective is very much skewed in one direction. Like, he is a cop, for example. But, like, no other character gets this kind of insight. There's no one ever to challenge him. And the one moment where people do challenge him from his recollections, like when he looks back at times other people disagreed with him, he, like, pones them with epic knowledge and, like, puts them down and then shut, puts them in their place. Oh, dear. Yeah. I might skip that one. Um... I just watched a film. The film is very good. And it, it takes out all of those stupid monologues. Now, the question is, Duncan, how does it compare to Warbreaker by Brandon Sanderson, my first ever Brandon Sanderson novel? It is your first ever Brandon Sanderson novel. It is not mine, as probably made evident in this. I think that's mm. worth kind of explaining kind of ahead of time. Yes. So a little what bit What is of... a Brandon Sanderson, Duncan? A Brandon Sanderson is quite possibly currently the biggest sort of name in the epic high fantasy uh, literary space, the particularly for people currently writing, and writing a lot. Brandon Sanderson writes at incredible pace. He has put out book after book after book. They are, by and large, very well received. He has recently had an incredibly successful Kickstarter last year. 
in terms of putting out like premium copies, like hardback copies of his books. Has a really good following. He has an excellent engagement online uh, with his fans. I do think he's very transparent in terms of this is what I'm writing. This is where I'm at. Like the guy has progress bars on his website being like, yeah, I think I'm about 80% done on this one now. So I really like his approach for engaging his audience and his readers. Put that out there first. Um, Brandon Sanderson, when it comes to fantasy, he mostly writes in what's known as the Cosmere, which is his shared fantasy universe. And I think that is worth explaining because some people find it quite intimidating approaching the Cosmere and all these intellectual views. Similar to how anyone approaching Marvel for the first time now probably would look at it and go, mm. uh, do I need to go back to Iron Man or can I jump in there? And with the Cosmere, it really is a universe. Like these are separate planets. They just so happen to exist. As Brandon says it, whether or not the characters know it or not, after the same creation, I say myth, actual creation story happened and like the fundamental like gods and laws of this universe are the same whether or not anyone in the stories know it or not he knows it it's in the back of his head and there are a very few select characters who have been known to jump between books but they are small and they are like easter egg level like, let's go chat about this on Reddit level. So the main thing is you can start any of the series and it won't really impact your enjoyment. Um, the four kind of traditional starts are Elantris, standalone, getting two sequels. Warbreaker, standalone, apparently getting a sequel. But as Brandon Sanderson said, it's mm-hmm. the one furthest down the line. Mistborn, mm-hmm. um, standard trilogy, era one, very YA. Probably my personal recommendation, actually. <laughs> for a starting point for someone coming to this new sure, sure, sure. Uh, YA heroic fantasy trilogy followed by western detective story follow-up very interesting and then finally stormlight archives which is the full-blown um Mazalan book of the fallen wheel of time game of thrones style this we're going big we're going hard epic sporting fantasy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. first book in that called the way of kings i'm not saying that isn't actually an amazing place to start but you've got to be the right type of person who looks at that and goes yes I want in mm-hmm. 10 books, each book longer than <laughs> anything else. Um, but also, even in that, though, he does do it in... He said he's going to break it down into sections. So, like, books 1 to 5 will have an arc, and then books 6 to 10 will be, like, the next era. Wait, how many How many books is he in? I think he's on four at the moment. Oh, wow. So, she's a long way to go. Very much so. But that's why I think he says it's, like, you know, 1 to 5, you'll get, a, like, a story... And you mm-hmm. can feel relaxed. But it's the fact that he's trying to push out... Oh, and there's another one called, like, Tress of the Emerald Sea, um, which came out last year, which I actually forgot existed until I looked up a complete list before recording. That's another standalone. Oh, gosh. So that's all out. Anyway, any of the mm, first ones sure. work. If you really don't know, I recommend either Lantris for good standalone. That's telling. Um, the first Mistborn for more of a YA heroic fantasy or Way of Kings because you just want to go for it. That's where I'd start. Well, great, I wouldn't start. Great. It's Warbreaker. Right. So why are we doing Warbreaker, Geordie? Because you wanted to and you hadn't read it before. <laughs> that is the only reason. That's why. And I always feel like a very bad friend. Because people told me Warbreaker was better than Elantris. It was the better standalone. Okay. Having now read it, I'm going to lay it down now. I think I preferred Elantris. 
Mm, I see, I see. That means nothing to me, but isn't the <laughs> Lunchers his first book? It is his first book, and I do think it's uh, clunkier I... in how it's been put together, but I mm-hmm. think the general story, pacing, and plot was more engaging and more satisfying. Okay, I've got to think... sound back now. Yeah, th- thank you, Duncan. That was very helpful, and I appreciate you taking us on this journey, because... You know, I'm just handling this basically like any other book. I have high expectations because Sanderson's a big name. He gets talked up by fans of fantasy all the time. But I have to say something very telling, and it's it's an observation I've made of fans of Brandon Sanderson, which is that if I had to track, what is it, the median? Like, the, the most frequent single praise he mode. gets. From, thank you. The mode. That's right. It's in the mode. That's right. Thank you, Duncan. Um, if I had to check the mode positive critique he gets from his fans is that he writes books very quickly. Yes. That's the one that comes up the most. I wouldn't say they think it's the highest praise, but it is the one that comes up the most frequently. <laughs> and to be fair, given the, um, I don't know what to call it, the state of the genre, an author that writes books quickly does seem like a bit of a godsend. I when disagree. Brandon Sanderson has written, okay, oh, you... Fair, fair enough. No, go Put ahead, go way. ahead. You can go ahead and disparage George R. R. Martin. Go ahead. I will. And and um, whoever wrote uh, King Killers, I have now forgotten his name. And to a certain extent, Scott Lynch as Patrick well. Brothers. Patrick Brothers, thank you. Because sometimes when you start off on a story, when I begin a book, I like to think that I'm going to be given an ending. And there's always that promise. It's like, I'm going to buy your book before you've written your ending and give you some, you know, financial support on your journey to write your ending in this sort of weird way where I'm like, yeah, but I'm assuming you will give me that ending, right? That's going to happen. You have to acknowledge that these are outliers, right, though? They're very high profile outliers, is what I will yes. say. There is like no doubt in anyone's authors. mind that Brandon Sanders is going to finish his series. We are yeah. getting the Stormlight Archives. Now, Duncan, there's finishing, but finishing a series isn't necessarily the same as, like, writing a great series. Shall we just get into how we feel about Warbreaker? I I fear we cannot put it off anymore. All right. Geordie, how did you feel about Warbreaker as your first Brandon Sanderson book? Now, the trick is that I normally like to really just start by giving a very brief thinking of, it's good, or... Oh, this sucked. This is hard because if I had to average it out, I would say it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. That's sort of like if I had to sort of stretch it out. It's definitely a book of highs and lows. There are high points and there are, I wouldn't say low points, but there are long points where it really drags its feet. And I think to myself, this is a very successful author. Maybe he isn't getting enough pressure from his editors to trim down his book. But boy, does his book need to be trimmed a lot. I'm not going to disagree with that. In fact, that would be my most prominent critique is the fact mm-hmm. that it's not that anything happens to it which was bad or bits that I was like ghoul to read. There were just bits in this. There's bad stuff in here. Bits in this for me, though, where I was just like, I'm going to give you faith, Brandon Sanderson, that this is going to subtly, cleverly tie back in later in a way that will make me go, oh, I understand now. That's why it was in there. And uh, when I f- finished that last page and closed the book, I sat back and went, 
no that didn't come back later that did it that wasn't needed mate i had faith in i you. think for the most part i think for the most part stuff did come back but i still think the overcommitted i think the biggest culprit of this is vivena this book has a number of perspective characters and vivena's characters spend the largest period of time of this book accomplishing very little um it's revealed oh no way Let's do a non-spoilery one first. Basically, a lot of the stuff she does in this book ultimately doesn't amount to much. You know, it didn't have to be a huge time commitment. It could have been a lot fewer pages. Yes, there's a particular section in this book where she goes around a city and meets different people. And we get a That's lot right, of those exactly. interactions as a play-by-play. And in reality, if it was a paragraph going over the next couple of weeks, I was dragged from here to here and had flustered mm-hmm. conversation after flustered conversation trying to achieve X. Absolutely. It, it would have done the same. Ultimately. Exactly. That's exactly what I thought to myself. It should have been montage. Okay. That's that's still not, I think, the worst of it. No, no, it's true. I think that, and that's the, um, that's the difficulty is that when it comes to critiquing this book, that's really a substantial thing I can point my finger at, and I think that is a fair criticism of the book. The other things are a bit more pervasive, and they sometimes succeed, and they sometimes don't. Now, this is Stunkin' Duncan. I wonder if we're going to have a disagreement on this, because the th- I'm going to read to you the first note I made in this book. And bear in mind, I couldn't take a lot of notes, because I was hiking the whole time. I wasn't sp- stopping a lot. But this is the time when I had to actually sit down, take out my phone, and write a note. Brandon Sanderson is the least funny author we've covered on the pod. People are constantly making jokes, and almost none of them are funny. Oh. Okay. Oh, Geordie. I mean, Mm. I don't stand with you there. Um, Okay, gotcha. I will be open and honest and say, yeah. Compared to our most recent read, The Black Tongue Thief. That's right. Not close. That book was hilarious. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to... There were jokes in here that didn't land. Particularly the character of Light Song and his scribe Scoot. I felt were trying to be funny. A lot more than they were. But I wouldn't say this was painfully unfunny. I didn't I say found... that. I didn't say this is painfully okay. unfunny. I just said it's not funny. But go ahead. Just one example of the humour in this book that I actually did find quite amusing. Um, you have the mercenary characters, and it makes sense of their mercenary humour. Most of those I found quite funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I found the some of the interactions with um, the character of Siri mm-hmm. and the God King. Um, I actually kind of found their kind of inter- you know their kind of awkwardness of reveal quite humorous when we discover you know his more sensitive side do you know i'm just not I getting found you, mate. those scenes cute i didn't find them funny and all of the scenes you're giving examples of i definitely agree light song is like the worst culprit of this because he's a very sardonic character and i think the problem is is that brand sense's style of humor appears to be quite dry and sardonic but like not a clever, dry, and sardonic. It's just characters constantly making quips. And my face was just stony blank. Just staring dead ahead. No change in expression. I never went, that's a bad joke. Like, that's just like, that made me annoyed at how it went. I just had zero reaction. 
which is almost it's like the worst thing isn't it i'm a big fan and like fighter for like the dad joke the pun even if it gets that kind of like Mm -hmm. cringe out of you i'm like no that that did its job there's not even kind of any of that kind of humor here no it's just people being sarcastic and and the worst part is is that um the worst part is that so many of the jokes are set up the exact same way especially with light song where light someone will say something very serious and light song will give this sarcastic remark and then it will say and the person stared at him like he didn't get it and it happens over and over and over and over and over again um yes like it just and needs, if that, it was a film it'd just be someone going huh i think that is a that always feeds back into your first critique of the length because i don't think necessarily that that was i could have found that more funny if the joke wasn't repeated and it's same with actually with the mercenary humor because whenever they do like these yeah humor, it's the same joke verses, you do really dark jokes and they do a dark shows like oh guess we'll have to start putting fingernails and the joke is always vivian goes oh, that's horrific and they go aha just mercenary humor and you're like you didn't have to do that. In fact, they just said that and you left it for me, the reader, to laugh that they're being overly dark or to question mm-hmm. whether or not they're being overly dark or serious, much more clever, then I think I would have found it more enjoyable. It's that Indeed. every time someone basically some has to point out... It's like it was sarcasm. Um, you should never now, have to point out that you're being sarcastic. No, you shouldn't. Now, here's and, the deal. Because yes. the humour was so samey, there was one joke which got an actual laugh out of me. Uh, I didn't, like, write down the joke or anything, but, like, it's a scene where Light Song wants to get into High Mother's, like, temple. And so he, like, says, all right, bring in the marching band. And, like, it's so different from every other joke in it. It's like a gag. Not a sardonic quip. It's a gag. Like, you see in a sketch. That I laughed. I was like, ha, oh, you actually made a joke. Good job, buddy. <laughs> okay. We've got length and we've got humour. Yeah. They're not the worst things in the world still. No, no, no. Those aren't really that important. Like, this isn't a comedy book. Like, if, you know, Kings of the Wild was at this level of funny instead of what it is, that would be an awful book. Obviously, one of our favourites of the book, our podcast so far. But if that book, which is supposed to be funny and is full of jokes, were at this level, it would be the worst book we'd done because it had failed in its mission. This book isn't setting out to be like a ha-ha-ha book. This is a serious fantasy adventure book. We say then the problem is, is it tries to make too many jokes for the quality of humour. No, they're just not funny. I mean, yeah, you know, no, the true Dun- there's Duncan. That's that is a fair assessment of my criticism. It doesn't matter that these jokes aren't that funny. It's just that characters like Light Song and like the mercenaries are constantly making jokes and Nightblood as well, and none of them are funny. And you can kind of see where each one's meant to be. Like Nightblood, uh, the sentient tool referenced earlier, it's yeah. meant to be like, oh, it's doing that kind of deadpan, saying obscene things, mm-hmm. and Light Song is meant to be that quick. Oh my god, witty! Oh my god, witty, quits. funny, sardonic. Yes, thank you. Uh, kind of character. Quip, quippy. That's yes. the word. I, I, I think that a problem I had with Nightblood is that obviously Nightblood is sort of an homage to other sentient swords, and particularly kind of sentient evil swords. 
like for obviously the Stormbreaker is the go-to example because it's the it's the OG. But there's plenty of talking swords in fantasy who have a humorous interaction with their wielder. And the point of this one is that, you know, the sword is a bit broken. It's a bit wrong. And maybe I could have enjoyed this more if we hadn't read Empire of a Vampire in which that same idea is explored way 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 better see i wasn't thinking back to empire the vampire i actually got taken back a long long time ago to um reading color of magic for the first time mm. and then obviously that is a comedy book meant to make you laugh and it has a sentient sword in that and i just remember that actually used to make me laugh out loud with its I attitude mean, to heroics i mean now, maybe i it's just been it's, uh, it goes back to our f- previous criticisms of the color of magic, but I just did not remember that magic sword. <laughs> Fair enough. Reread on the cards then. Oh, no. Okay. okay. So we've got your, it's fine, kind of laying it out. That kind of sloping off, low kind of distribution curve there. I want to say some quick punchy. These are things I thought were good. Sure. And then maybe we'll uh, we'll lay the land with the plot. And then we can dive into the more spoileristic elements. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. I like the sound of it. Okay, so things that I really liked. Um, I thought that the uh, core relationship in one of the sub- there's three kind of main subplots here, yeah, or plots. Uh, the core relationship of the God King and his new wife. Mm. I liked seeing them. Their romance I thought was cute. Yes. I thought it was budding. Agreed. I was completely bought into it. I a hundred percent. I agree. I completely agree. I thought it was really sweet. I loved the mystery and the drama surrounding it. Uh, I think that's probably what was in Brandon Stenson's heart when he set out to do this. He was probably like, I'm going to do my Court of Thorns and Roses. And I think that's the case because the voice actor who was playing all these roles was the same voice actor from A Court of Thorns and Roses. I think that was probably a very deliberate decision by the publishers. They were like, let's get someone who can do romance uh, books. So now you've mentioned that, I've got to say, that's an excellent comparison, because who's the kind of sarcastic character in Court of Thorns and Roses, the sort of the man-servant to our leading yes, man in Yes, he that? came to mind a lot as well. Um, that is who I thought, I think, Light Song was meant to be channel- uh, channeling a bit more, but I just don't think he quite was there for me. No, and uh, you know, I've, I've made clear that guy kind of annoyed me for no fault of his own, but that guy is way funnier than Light Song. Um, I really enjoyed also... The I actually enjoyed a bit of kind of the uh, political exploration. I like that in the character of Vivian, we go from this, uh, the war can't be stopped. We have mm-hmm. to start now undermining the other kingdom. And I really enjoy the moment when someone goes, what are you doing? You're making war more inevitable. By being preemptive, you're giving into the fact that we can't change things. And actually, I enjoyed that. Uh, kind of, yeah. I, I, I guess I enjoyed the fact that... Um... I guess I enjoyed the fact that it's a book about peacekeeping. You know, like, that's a novel twist. Most uh, stories of this kind are about war is inevitable. We have to put a stop to it. That means taking some sort of violent action. I really appreciate this book is a very, very different uh, approach. I respect the ambition of that. That being said, I couldn't stress enough that, like, right at the start of the book, it's got, they go out of their way, out of their way to say Vivenna has been trained to know all sorts of things about the society which she's going into. Uh, she spent her whole life preparing for it. 
And the moment things change even slightly, she has no idea what to do. On one hand, that makes sense. Like, you could, it's very clear that she has a sheltered upbringing. But there are so many, like, very obvious political mistakes where she doesn't understand how their government works. I'm like, I don't believe you wouldn't know that. There's tons of stuff I do believe you are not aware of. That makes sense, but not that. I do feel that as well a little bit. There was this element where so Vivian is trained to go into the courts, mm-hmm. you know, so she's meant to be able to work on the higher levels, but she ends up having to go in at the bottom and doesn't understand like the underside of society because she spent all her time cooped up in the palaces. But you're right. There are so many questions that she has about like, how does the scribe system work? And who, where does the political power lie? I'm like, surely this was in your prep sheet. Mm-hmm. Like how the bureaucracy of this land works must be, if you're going to go into the court, you need to understand the bureaucracy, mate. Exactly. I think that section of a novel about her preparing for a coming war, I've said before, that section is far too long, but I think the point it makes ultimately is a good one, and that's like one of the more solid things in the story. So but it's a good, good idea handled poorly, in my opinion. Okay, on to the next punchy positives then. Yes. I enjoyed... I enjoyed... The, the, kinetici- the kineticism in like the action when people are using their magic and flying about climbing walls and getting into some fights I had quite a bit of fun uh, uh, there's some mixed bag for me um, I, I feel like we've deliberately avoided using the word magic system so far we're going to have to bring it up at some point I feel like the gags they ultimately end up using with it like the action beats are pretty solid um, I think on the whole, when it comes down to you slash this person, and then that person, and then that person, it's like a 5 out of 10, maybe a 4.5 out of 10. It's just not very interesting to me. Uh, I don't think it did enough to really create a sense of feeling in it. Like, for example, I mentioned that I've been reading these Saxon stories. Those books do a really interesting thing with action, which is that they are unbelievably simple. And they focus so much more on the feeling in the character's head compared to the actual stuff that's happening. Like, Uhtred, as a character, he basically has three moves. He has two swords, and he's either going to stab you in the groin, or he's going to stab you in the neck, or something's going to go wrong, and he has to improvise. And so, it's just, and we're in the shield wall, and we clashed. And the interesting thing is that The author just uses the word and a lot. He says, and I did this, and I did that, and I did that, and I did that, and I did it again, and again, and again. And just the simplicity of and how it's hammered home over and over creates this really potent sense of a desperation of a moment. And I didn't feel anything like that reading Warbreaker immediately after those books. (laughs) So I think Warbreaker for me does two things. See, now I'm going down the negatives. It does two things in this action which I didn't enjoy. Well, mm. it, it failed to do two things, actually. And this was really brought into sharp attention when I read Alloy of Law, another Brandon Sanderson book. And the first one is, there's very little thinking during the fighting. You know, either we're following a character who's very skilled, mm-hmm. and it's slash, slash, and people die. Um, but we don't. there's very little, okay, I faint, I move, I'm thinking, okay, what can I do? How do I get out of this? Yeah. situation there's very little of that and also there's very little magic i think organically woven into the combat um, yeah with one one or two notable exceptions 
it's very interesting that uh god what's his name again denth not denth yeah vasha vasha um it's very interesting that vasha has very few like magic spells to very to simplify it greatly which he uses in a fight it's almost entirely i throw a rope i say wrap things and it ties him up and then he knocks him on the head and that's almost it entirely you know like it is never is it really like i thought that'd be something creative like this guy can imbue like life into inanimate objects that's right i was expecting there to be like him to be in a fight scene and there to be like a wooden rug and then to be like ha exactly i was just have it fly that. off and knock two guys and then this guy he's running for the building should be jackie chan he should be constantly taking advantage of stuff in his environment there should be a scene where he he smashes like the top of a chair to make it into make, look it slightly more human, take out he, to spit on it because he needs to imbue it with some part of himself or stuff some pre-made hair in, and he should say charge, and he should send a whole bunch of chairs just running at people, um, but he never does anything as interesting or cool as that. That that was exactly well, not exactly my thought. Same thoughts. I thought is there not going to be a scene where he like jumps up on a ladder and it's like run. And oh, yeah, like, take so off good. down the street. Oh. <laughs> and there's a little scapa 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 scapa. Maybe I've just seen um the movie Suzume, in which there's a just like tiny running chair that just like <laughs> runs all over the place, but that's what I, I'm seeing in my head now. And like you felt that really strongly come off the Saxon story, it's like to more the emotions of the combat. When I was reading Alloy of Law, in that the main character has a magical power that he can push off um steel. Mm. And then What's so great about that idea is the fact that we're in a world with guns. All the guns he can basically push off, or mm-hmm. bullets. So it's these kind of gunfu kind of fight scenes where he's like takes a shot and then he turns around, takes another shot in a different direction, so he can push off the bullet and go flying off in another direction. And then like working out like trajectories, and it's all about like okay, if I push myself up in the air, I'll be in that arc, then I can take a shot. Mm-hmm. Oh, but then that guy's going to shoot me, so then I need to be able to find another bit of metal to change my direction and Duncan, i don't know a lot about that out. series but if you would not care about getting shot because i would be very concerned about getting shot the first time as opposed to the second and the third time uh it's uh, made very clear that obviously because he can sense steel to push off it if a bullet's coming towards him he can just kind of like gently push it off track i don't believe that you can't think faster than a bullet uh another Unless guy has extremely a... far away there's another character who has slow down time powers though so it's always like they play off each other. Okay, okay, okay. okay. So don't worry, don't worry. He's thought it through a bit. Yeah. Um, back to Wallbreaker. Okay, so those were my. Gosh, so you took two of my positives and kind of even twisted them. Mm. I don't think what else I really did like. Well, the world building. I know yeah, you're not the biggest fans. And you know, I'm a long, long history of saying world building is a very unimportant part of fantasy. In terms of making something a good book, it's very important to the fantasy genre, but not necessarily to the actual process of reading it. Uh, good world building of this book, no question of that. It is hammered home too many times, way too many times. And uh, sometimes he focuses on the wrong things. Like, I don't, I didn't know who Khaled was until the end of the book. I feel like I should have known a little bit more who Khaled was. He keeps, keeps being brought up. But the fact that the book is about the cultural differences between two nations and it's about characters from one nation, Idris, struggling in the other, Duncan, what's it called? Hallandrum? Yeah, Hallandrum, thank you. 
Yeah, it's about them like struggling to adapt to being in a new scenario. Of course, you know, world building is an essential part of that. So it is it's a good priority and um I and think he did a decent job of explaining the cultural differences even if they are pretty simple. They are kind of simple. One the early ones is just like the dress. Like how can they wear such scant clad outfits and such garish colors? You're like, "Oh yeah, cool." That's not particularly shocking uh, from an external reader's point of view. Um, and also, I really enjoyed... Mm, well, I have, I have something to say about that, but go on. I did also really enjoy the fact that, in terms of the world building, one of the elements here is that both nations sort of had their own version of the history between them. And I really like yeah. that kind of a key mm-hmm. element, if them trying to shift through both stories and go, okay, but well, wh- what are the facts? And I love it, minor kind of spoiler here, but I love it that one of the reveals near the end is that some of these characters from history, it's like, oh, that was actually the same bloke. And like, these people have this whole interpersonal relationships that go beyond, mm-hmm. you know, Zarkar, the mighty, came out of the East and fought a battle here. And you realise, no, these were people and they had their own kind of personal motivations. And, you know, history has gotten blurred down the line. It's about unravelling that kind of aspect and the characters themselves learning yeah. more about their world. Uh, this ties into the magic system. I love that there are elements of the magic system where they're like, well, we don't even know what happens when you get to that level of magical power because so few people have Mm. ever done it. So it's like the early levels of magic are like really set out and the later levels are like, yeah, you you get some powers, but we're not sure what. So all of that, I think, A-star. Yeah, and of course, you mentioned that magic is part of world building and I think it is like well conveyed to the reader, even if... He does explain things again and again. I think, I think it was very. I think it was a good idea. I think it was a really good idea that I I knew right from the start, pretty quickly how the magic works because it's laid out very basic terms. I appreciate that. Three hundred pages later, he says, "All right, and now we're just going to revisit it again, like a teacher saying, let's just make sure." I, he is a professor, so it makes sense. <laughs> He's just like, all right, I know some of you weren't paying attention before, so let's just go over this again. Here are the basics of uh, chroma magic. Biochroma. Bioluminescence. Biochromatic magic. Biochroma. But what is it actually called, like the magic? I know, it's breath magic. Biochromatic. Breaths. Yeah, breath magic. That's right. Yeah. It's bad. It's bad for a uh, be a demon slayer fan and have someone to say breath magic. Because I'm like, yeah, 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 I know breath magic. You just make your sword look funny. All right. Um, what I would say, you say revisiting the book. Also, a great bit when you, if you are reading the physical copy, it's at the back of the book, and this is true for pretty much all Brandon Sanderson books. There is literally like a table that goes X number of breaths equals this power, and it's all just laid out for mm. you, so you can be like, okay, I know what they mean. What's the fifth heightening? Oh, there's yeah, a table. I only discovered cool. at the end. They also have it in your audiobook, but it's fucking useless because you have to listen to the whole chapter again just to get to the point that's relevant. So. I don't know why they bother to include it, but, you know, it's fair. It's fair. It'd be like if someone was, like, reading aloud the map at the front of the book. (laughs) (laughs) And then this place bordered this place, and there were some trees in between, and a little feather. Exactly. And now, now, 100 miles due north by northeast? All right. I think so. I think we've laid out what we thought was good and bad. I think to really then get Warbreaker and why maybe we were a bit more meh on it and why certain plots ran a bit long yeah. we've got to kind of jump into those spoilers so let's lay the ground and dive in spoilers time 
Um, I, good. Now we can have an in-depth discussion about like what's going on in this book. I, I feel like don't, I feel like we've been a, a tad harsh on it because we needed to um, we needed to air out some of the stuff we had issues with before we get to the point where we could really describe why those things happen and essentially offer justifications for them. And I think a big element in Warbreaker is, as you kind of said near the beginning, it has yes. good and bad bits. So you can talk a lot about the bad bits, but to be honest, we could also have an equal conversation where we just go, I really like this, I really like this, I really like I this. I don't know if you could go as long as the standout really good bits as you could for the stuff that is disappointing. I think that the quality it has is the sort of cohesion it has towards the end. You know, the fact that... It does wrap up most of its threads. And you're like, okay, what well, that was a pretty satisfying conclusion. It does need exactly one more chapter. As long as a book it is, I can't believe. I can't believe. But we shall get back to that momentarily. Let's very, very quickly do a fly-through of what happens in this book. Warbreaker, the story of two kingdoms. Not at war, but not loving each other. And the story of the princess of one queen, uh, one kingdom being sent to marry mm-hmm, the king of the other. The king being a god king. We follow three characters. We follow the princess that gets sent to marry the god king and her journey, who turns out is not the princess that was intended. She's the younger princess because her dad liked her less. And he was thinking, if you get taken as a hostage, I'll much happier let you die. Dad of the year ward. We also follow the older sister who thinks that's off and Mm -hmm. runs off to save her. And she then gets embroiled in sort of the underground of the society. And finally, we follow Light Song, who we've mentioned several times, who is a god Mm -hmm. in this society. He is a returned, a human that came back from the other side with no recollection of his life before, magical powers. And he is a god that is involved in court politics and doesn't want to be a god. That's him summed up. And we follow these uh, three plot lines, sort of uh, concurrently, jumping between the two, uh, with Ciri, the princess that got sent to become the queen, sort of mm-hmm. having her romance plot. Light Song having this kind of court intrigue, kind of detective-esque yep, plot. With lots of sarcastic comments. And then Vivian sort of bouncing between sort of the underbelly of society, sort of discovering that not everyone can be trusted and to be more competent yes. and outgoing and People on the and streets. I think for most importantly, in terms of themes for this book, and we haven't touched on the themes yet, the big theme in this book is basically, it's about leaving your hometown and how going to the big city changes you. I don't think this book could possibly be properly am- analysed without talking about Mormonism. Okay, well, that's a swing from the dark. Actually, it wasn't. I kind of knew that was coming. <laughs> no, no, no. Yes. No. So Brandon I mean, Sanderson. Yeah. Brandon Sanderson is a Mormon. He's a professor at Brigham Young University. He, his classes are going to be mostly full of young Mormons. And you can see this in this book. Yeah. This book definitely has two elements that I think speak for Mormonism. And these elements you mm-hmm. can see in a lot of other Brandon Sanderson works. One is the idea that Brandon Sanderson never really knocks faith. Um, mm. Even though he's faced different, lots of different religions sometimes in his books, he always kind of universally rewards faithful characters. Characters that keep their faith or mm-hmm. believe are always put in a good light. Mm. 
that's universal. And the second thing, which you're probably about to come to, going to the big city, there's a lot of, oh my God, look how they do it here. That's a big thing in this book. It's all about like, um, Vivian as a character is extremely judgmental of other people's cultural practices, which she thinks are um, indecent and taboo. The way the women dress, they dress so scantily, they dress in too many colors, they have different food, they can't, and she can't handle it. You know, most of, uh, uh, most of Brandon Sensen's male students, and indeed some female students now, are probably going to do a mission at some point. They're going to leave their hometown. They're going to leave Salt Lake City. They're going to leave Utah. They might even leave the United States of America and go to different places. And they're going to have to put up with the temptations of the outside world and the way people do things differently. And have to put up with people not believing the same things they do. And even disrespect from other people who think their religion is funny. And that's emotionally very hard. And I think that a big part of what is guiding him in this is seeing the way this has impacted people, to see the way in which these people have had their faith shaken by the fact that other people don't respect them or the fact that the outside world is so different from their own cultural practices and their own little sheltered bubble. I also think it's very interesting and almost provocative that both princesses are fundamentally changed by the story, which you would hope, you know, that's that's a good story. You want your character to change over the course. And neither of them can return to Idris. You know, they've both been changed so much that they can't really go home. And funnily enough, it almost feels like, it almost feels like Brandis Anderson is giving them permission, you know, his readers, his students, permission to let go a little bit, you know? That definitely seems the angle it's taking. Um, mm-hmm. And I love it how both sisters write at that kind of conclusion very differently. With um, Siri, it's very much a personal relationship at the start. It's just she's fallen in love with someone who is not compatible with the ideas back home. You know, mm. He is the god of another religion. Yeah. There's no room <laughs> yep, for yep. him back on the farm. Um, and then Vivian, it's more of the fact that she just is so changed by seeing what other cultures, other societies have to put up with and how mm-hmm. they do things. And the, I think a lot of it is just a, a gaining for the empathy for this wider group of people. Just like there's mm-hmm. so many more important things going on. I can't go back and effectively turn a blind eye again. Um, there's this excellent bit with her where she realised a lot of the people who come here are the poor people from her own kingdom. She thinks, oh my yeah. God, he's such a good king. She's like, well, do you know what? He don't, they can't look after everyone. And there are always, an, there's always an underclass. Mm-hmm. And like, you can't, going back home and living as very traditional, I don't know, I'm going to call it the pious life, isn't going to help them. You protecting, and that's a really big factor, is the fact mm-hmm. that she gets access to the magic system in this world. And that's very taboo in her own kingdom. And she's like, I shall mm. not use it. And I love the characterization of like her realizing my own like self ideal of like piety and like religious goodness and like Mm -hmm. upholding myself to that standard is less important than actually helping people yeah yeah and this brings in uh another really important theme in this book and that is uh bigotry you know at the start of the book vivian doesn't realize this she thinks she's a non-judgmental person in fact it's part of her religion to not be judgmental but she's extremely judgmental and she's bigoted. 
and she gets called out eventually that her pious, straightforward, straight-laced views are bigoted, and she has to get over that in the course of a story. And what this makes me think of is a sort of hate the sinner, not the sin, no, or vice versa, hate the sin, not the sinner sort of thing, where uh, fundamentalist Christians would be like, oh, I don't hate gay people, I just hate homosexuality itself, and I feel like you should choose to not do that sort of behavior. And there's no escaping the fact that that is just homophobia. You can't just say, oh, I I, I don't cast judgment on you personally, just an absolutely and extremely important defining aspect of who you are. Brandon Sanderson once put in a Reddit thread I read, someone asked him a question, which was, you know, you have gay characters in your books. You know, you've said that you are um, pro the rights of gay people to get married, but your religion isn't. And, like, gay kids can't come to your school. How do you, like, how do you deal with that as an author? How do you tolerate that? And essentially, he gave his really strong response, like an actual really impressive response to say, like, it is this big source of conflict for me. And I want my faith to be one of love. And I want my, my, my society to be more tolerant. I acknowledge that I can't make it so, but, you know, it is a hope that I have for the future that it will move in that right direction. And I was like, oh, that was a really, that was a, that was a nice answer. And I can see in this book, I can see how he's trying to do that. You're right. And I, I at the end of our kind of a last episode, you know, you mentioned, oh, is it Mormonism under blanket? I said it's under the tablecloth. It's like, it's there. You can definitely see the shape and form of all of that. I will say, though, if for whatever reason you don't want to see that aspect or you just feel like I don't know anything about Mormonism and we're going to miss huge mm. themes of the text, I'm like, no, it, it does no, work no, no, no. completely yeah, in its own way. True. What we're saying is we can see the source of these ideas and how they relate back to the author, but they mm-hmm. completely work within text. Like, Yeah, you don't need to know that. You know, like most people who read Twilight had no idea that Stephanie Meyer was a Mormon when he read it. And um, and whilst it's important as to why those books are written in those ways, that despite being about a blood-sucking monster, they're surprisingly chaste. That's why, because that is an important aspect of who the author is. This book is also surprisingly chaste, for in which a lot of characters are naked, but it's weird in how it talks about sex and sexuality. Shall we get into oh. that now? <laughs> Let's. Okay, so first things, for someone who's read a few more other Brandon Sanderson books, yeah. I would say that this is the least chase of Brandon Sanderson's works. In wow. fact, it is almost scandalous compared to some of his other works. Is it how often he talks about one character's breasts? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, there's something new and exciting. It's like, I must emphasize this is a sexy person. Yeah, what yeah, yeah. can I describe? It's so funny that, like... You know, like A Court in Thorns and Roses, it's about a character who's whisked away and forced into a situation where she eventually falls in love with her capital. You know, that's classic. It's classic. It's Beauty and the Beast. And eventually, the two of them end up sleeping together. Gasp. But the, from the moment before they even meet, they are married. You know, they are married and this is okay. They are together. So you could feel fine about liking this story because they're married. It's, there's no premarital anything. There's no premarital nope. looking at each other. 
I love I love the priest literally sidles up to her and it's like, just be aware that you are already legally wed by his own will of the God King. You are done. That is it. Don't worry. Now go in there and not look at your husband. <laughs> um, and I also like that Light Song is very consistently as a character. He's like, all these people, he is constantly approached by and Blush Weaver. Yeah. And he's constantly like, nope, nope, not for me. Not interested. Yeah. So on one hand funny uh i i blush weaver is a strange strange character i'd like you to go ahead duncan and tell me your take on blush weaver okay right so first things first blush weaver is one of the returned a god of this realm um this person died in their previous life came back with superpowers they are worshipped that's great. Blushweaver is an active member of the Court of Gods. Mm-hmm. So she's just clearly trying to politic about, bring people to her side. She is a pro-war individual. Mm-hmm. Um, she also, for some reason, absolutely adores Light Song and is continuously asking him if they, he wants to go and have sex with mm-hmm. her. Um, and Brandon Sanderson, the author, continuously reminds us that Blushweaver is incredibly traditionally beautiful and has... Um, a narrow waist. It's very well indoors. Big old honkers. Yes. Thank you for saying it like that. Um, I'm going to put this out there. When you, I read uh, Core Thorns and Roses, yeah. I felt in some of the more um, erotic and styled scenes mm-hmm. that the author, when they were writing them, was probably getting into it. They, they, they were feeling a level of the emotion. Mm-hmm. Brandon Sanderson, I feel like, was either blushing himself <laughs> or giggling like a schoolboy. <laughs> One of the two. The word schoolboy got into my head. Word. It's quite juvenile. <laughs> and... There is an element of explanation to that. If Hannah, hey, this is Blush Weaver looks as she imagines perfection to be for what she wants, which is to just you know gain the uh, attraction of the men in the court so that she can aim her kind of political goals. What makes it very interesting, kind of underhand, is that it's basically eventually revealed that she was always working for someone else, and it really, for me, undercuts her agency. Her agency. Yes completely and like oh so you were just following someone else's instructions mm-hmm. um and then she does um at the end of this book die mm. she's killed off and it feels very much like um i'm not really familiar with the term I, i'm gonna allude to something called fridging yeah. which is out in the zeitgeist where characters are killed off just a female character and the only thing that's really cared about is the impact on the male character yeah. um that's what this scene is like she is take has no further agency, no emotional attachments. Mm-hmm. She only exists to her relationship to Light Song. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of annoyed me because I'm like, but she was meant to be the political mastermind. Yeah. Surely she had other strings going. It's like, nope, that was it. She was just a pawn for the greater master evil. Yeah, and yeah, that's actually Duncan. That was a really good criticism. You think you phrased that really well, especially in regards to her agency. Because in my personal notes, that wasn't really but what I focused on. I'm glad you brought it up. Well, and I felt very disappointing because I thought the point of her in this kingdom, particularly that it has a god king and that Siri and Vivian um, are at the start of the story robbed of their agency slightly by their situations. Siri is told you don't have agency here. Vivian is very much told, well, she doesn't, she thinks she has agency, she doesn't. Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, Blush Weaver is the female with the woman, the god, the goddess. There we go. The correct title, the goddess with agency you know she has a level of power and when it's told that she doesn't i'm like oh oh so this was actually an incredibly um sexist society and that means that in that there are very few scenes in which our main characters 
two of whom are women, actually get to have potent moments of agency. Like, Vivian is completely hoodwinked around most of the book. Fair enough, that's the story you're telling, and therefore she actually doesn't have much agency because she's being led along by the nose, and then she falls in with Vasher. But then she just does what Vasher tells her to do. It takes ages until the very, very climax of the book, but she actually kind of gets to start making her own decisions. Uh, Siri is the most oh. willful character in the book. That's her deal, like, that she doesn't do what she's told. And f- and to be fair, she is constantly, like, rebelling, but she's still in a structure where, like, so many of her choices are taken away from her. She just has to do what she's told. I, uh, I, I, I do feel like she comes out of it on top, though, in terms of having her agency because she's always struggling against it. So fair enough on that front. Vivian, though, I feel only really gets it at the, the tiny bit at the end when she goes, I'm not returning to my home kingdom. I'm off with you, Vasha. Mm. I think that's the only real point of agency for her. I think there is a moment when she decides to go after Vasha and follow him into the castle. That's a a moment of courage. It does rely on an astounding coincidence of the fact that, you know, they throw away the sword and they throw it into the sea and a fisherman finds it and a fisherman keeps it, but he doesn't open it straight away and kill himself in the boat. No, no, no. He takes it all the way back to land and he goes back into his house and then he and his friends fight over it and then they die. And then Vivian just happens to be walking by the house, was thinking about Vasha. She realizes what's going on. She sneaks inside and finds the sword. Convenient. Indeed. And then she gets to make her big decision to join in on the climax. Hooray. I want to say one more thing about Bloodweaver. Go for it. Is Blush Weaver supposed to be, like, a parody? Is she a parody of oversexed characters? Oversexed female characters, specifically? She feels so obviously a misogynistic, masculine caricature that she almost transcends conventional critique and enters the realm of, like, satire. It's like asking if, like, the fembots from Austin Powers are misogynistic when they're criticizing the Bond films and their misogyny. But I don't know if it's on purpose. Like, what does he have to say about oversexed female characters? That's the issue uh, that I have, because, as we said, if the the character is portrayed as highly oversexualized in appearance, Mm -hmm. but for at least the majority of the novel is meant to be, oh, but they're the the mastermind, the little finger of the court. Mm. So first of all, okay, maybe it's meant to be, you know, because they are a god, you know, they have taken this oversexualized form to aid in that. You know, they are aware of it and they're trying to use it to their advantage. And this is I think a that is a bit different statement. from that. I think it is a bit different than that. I think the characters, I think it's stated quite plainly that characters who come back, who are returned, resemble the thing they're supposed to represent. So, like, a character comes back young, and he looks young, even though he could have aged up into a man by magical aging process. He still looks like a boy. One of them's returned is, like, they're all supposed to be super beautiful, but one is super beautiful in, like, a curvy, voluptuous way. One person's returned is an old woman. She hasn't been restored to her youth, which she might have been, because she's supposed to represent, like, maternity. So, like... Some aspect of what people believe about them influences the way they look. And she and Blushweaver is supposed to represent sexuality and beauty. But it's interesting that she's female beauty. And there is no equivalent 
for male sexuality. There's no interest for male beauty. The only example we have of male beauty is that all the gods are conventionally muscular and tall and broad-chested and attractive. But they're not sexualized in any regard similar to um, Blushweaver. No, you're quite right. Um, I'm just trying to think back then to your parody point. The only kind of side to that I would say is because Light Song so easy, so easy, consistently rebukes her mm-hmm. um, when she attempts to kind of basically flirt with him. Is that I think is definitely play from last from Light Song's point of view, or from those sections. But that's kind of it. I'm, I'm with you, mate. You know, yeah. it's very I also personally. Mean, I also made say my is, mind yeah. about this. Okay, what do you, you have to say? Because I have my mind. It came in a moment when Blushweaver comes to meet Light Song, and for a change, she isn't wearing, like, what she would wear in a Conan novel. Like, she isn't dressed, like, in a single piece of cloth which stretches from her chest to her waist. Um, she's, like, wearing covering clothes. And Light Song's narration goes, amazing how good she looks in something like that. He found himself thinking... When she takes the time to respect herself. Fuck you. Fuck you. That is nakedly yeah. misogynistic. Go fuck yourself, Brandon Sanderson. I'm glad we got to the same. I got to do a different, a different scene, but yes. All right, I'm listening. Ultimate. No, I, mine's to go back to her ultimate, her death scene. Yeah, that was yeah, a bit yeah. where I kind of went, whatever you were trying to do throughout the course of this novel, you stuffed it there. You rob the character of its of their core agency. Mm-hmm. Okay? You literally don't focus on the effort at all, apart from the impact it has on Light Song. Like whatever you, I thought Brandon was trying to do, if he's trying to be parody, it didn't work because the ending snuffs it. And that's a great scene. I actually had forgotten about that scene. Um, but you're right. That is a horrific kind of viewpoint and one-sided standard. And yeah. Oh, that's right. it. Fine. Moving on from Blushweaver. We've said we've got to say. I don't know what I want to say now. I'm going to go to the... Oh, to be honest, the bit of the novel... No, I'm going to go to the bit of the novel then that I think... Because uh, we mentioned Vivian, her story, lack of agency. She goes between different mercenaries. It happens. But I think the one good bit, the bit that I'm sure was the bit that he mm. wanted to write when he wrote this, is the actual bit of the story that I was emotionally right there with and also was slightly mm. hit in the back of the head at the end. And that is the story of Siri and the God King, the God King called Susborn. Yeah, I know what you mean. I in the audiobook it pronounces Susebron, but it, 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 I read the way it's written, and you could read it a ton of different ways. Okay, I'll go with Susebron. I'm going to actually go with the God King probably, but Susebron, the God King. Mm. They have a romance that slowly develops throughout the book, and it's very sweet. I don't know if this is just on my mind because I, it, it recently came out. Uh, but I obviously was very much reading this having watched Netflix's uh, Queen Charlotte um, oh, a sure. Bridgerton <laughs> prequel mm-hmm. I loved the show um, but I, it gave me the same vibe like, you've got this queen she doesn't really understand the things they're not necessarily telling her about the king and I love the whole the build up to the king the god king the feared god king I love mm-hmm. the fact that we get I think a very nice slow reveal and a reveal that then works backwards mm-hmm. yeah to then fill in the other gaps so set the scene it's actually now i'm about to reverbalize it. it's actually yeah really d- don't, don't you don't need to go into depth about it like just say it okay basically she is told do not look at the gold king do not speak to the gold king you simply go into the bedchamber, do your deed over the night 
burn your sheets in the morning and we'll carry you and you then leave and then that's it you're just here to basically get pregnant and continue the line of god kings that's all that's involved in this process Mm -hmm. now what we basically discover is on the first night the god king just sits in his chair and does nothing and she obviously doesn't tell him not to look not to speak just wonders what's else going on and eventually her fear ebbs away because she's just getting frustrated like why does he just sit there you know, this terrifying dark figure by the fire. Why is he just sat in his chair? Mm-hmm. And eventually she snaps. She's like, what's going on? And he's, and then finally he turns around and we discover one, he can't speak because he doesn't have a tongue. Mm. And two, through some a bit of writing to each other, we later discover that he was sat there because he didn't know what he was meant to do. Mm-hmm. That is a good, it is well revealed. I agree. He'd only been taught a little bit on the uh, Mormonism side. He'd only really been taught. He's like, yes, a man and a woman spend their wedding night together and then the woman falls pregnant. Yeah. When does the, uh, when does the stork arrive? <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was like, that to me, that was a wonderful, uh, and actually one of my favorite kind of inferences back to the uh, Mormonism in this, the idea that he's just there like, yeah, no one, no one could bring themselves to talk to me about it. Yeah, yeah. They were all actually, too chaste. I did like that joke, actually. That's another joke I enjoyed, was the one about, they spend the night together. That was cute. Um, and then, yeah, and then the relationship evolves, because it starts off in secret. We discover that the king's tongue was uh, cut out, because his magical power is just too great. They're like, yeah. you can't use that, mate. Yeah. Um, Fun- and that enough. he's basically... They're, they're, yeah. It's this big mystery. There's this huge mystery in the book which hinges on the fact that he needs to pass on his power. But normally you can only pass on your power by speaking magic words. That's why they cut out his tongue. So that he can't use the magic and he can't pass it on to someone who they don't choose. But to the very end of the book, it's still never explained how they would pass on his power. No, because the one person who apparently knows the secret dies. Yeah. So one, now his power can never be passed on. Um, so if he dies, it just goes. That's a big deal. That might be a sequel. But also, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Like, it, it by what we understand, and unless you just want to say there was a super secret, super duper secret way to pass it on, and only these people knew, and no one else found it out, how the hell were they going to pass it on? It doesn't make any sense. When the main power is called breath, um, you need to speak. Is there's I I do have my own theory about this. Yeah. So part of the breath magic in this world is that you speak a command, but you have like an image of it in your mind that gets like the small details down. You know, hold this, but you've got to actually imagine the rope wrapping itself around something. Sure. For example. Well. Firstly, that means a lot of it is actually the mental process, Mm -hmm. visualising it. And also, what is a command? If we were speaking different languages, command still has the same meaning, doesn't it? No, but you have to speak in your native language. You have to, right, yeah? So it it does matter what language you speak. Intention matters. Say, okay, say someone's mute or someone's born deaf, um, but they speak with sign language... That's their native language, is signing. Can't they sign the command? No, they can't. Fine. That's my only theory. Even if you were totally deaf from birth and you'd learned sign language, you'd never heard a single word, it still wouldn't work because it's breath. You have to expel it. 
Clearly, there's some aspect of sound conveyed through a mouth which matters. I don't think you could do it with a trumpet, you know. I'm not sorry. Now I'm picturing that as that was like you're training a child from birth to like play different notes. Um, okay, no, that's probably right. And I think to be honest, I maybe Brandon Sanderson doesn't even know it worked for the plot. He probably does know, and it probably is a super secret way which just isn't revealed to us, but. I just don't buy it. it. It feels unfair. Like, it's a mystery which just isn't solved. Like, that was a big part of the mystery, and it was really interesting, and they just don't solve it. Speaking of well, the mystery, shall we talk about the big conspiracy? Right, okay then. End of the book. Climactic scene. Siri and the God King are set up the entire time to be thinking, oh, my high priest, Trebolesteles, is um, going to betray me. Mm. Um... And so it's like, the only person I can trust, the only person who told me that I can trust them is Bluefingers, the head scribe. Although he mm-hmm. told me not to trust anyone. Like, Littlefingers tells Ned Stark. Mm-hmm. And then Bluefingers betrays her. Yes. It turns out she could have trusted everyone except that one person, which doesn't feel true. I know, because you couldn't trust them, to be fair. No, There's nothing that she wanted to do. ridiculous. There's nothing she wanted to do that they would have still let her do. They were still keeping her captive. They just yeah. weren't actively planning to murder her. There is a difference, I'll give you. But still. Here's a question, Duncan. Yep. Why wh- wh- Why did they actually need her? Like, they didn't actually need her to be pregnant, you know? Right. Okay. So the idea that we've been told throughout the book is yeah. that she'll give birth to the next god king and the powers will pass on. This is mm-hmm. not actually how it works. What yeah. actually happens is they find a returned baby, so a baby that died and came back from the other side with its magical powers, and they swap that magic baby out for whatever happens with her. To be yeah. honest, it's not even though she can conceive. All the other gods don't think they can conceive children, at least children that survive. I was a bit unclear on the matter. No, I was confused by that as well. So, but the idea is, oh no, but we need her here. So it looks like she's with the God King. So it looks to everyone else that she's gotten pregnant. And so people won't question the theory. However, the God what King What are they going to do speak. with the baby? What are they going to do with the baby? Also, if she's not actually going through pregnancy, they don't let her go outside. Yeah. When they think she might be pregnant, they lock exactly. her in a room. So I'm like, well, if no one's going to see her looking pregnant... You didn't even need her to go into the room with the Gold King to begin with. You yeah, literally and go, if her child welcome is to the born, palace. Stillborn, she's gonna fucking know. So what's the difference in going to her and saying, listen, you need to pretend to be pregnant and we will give you a handsome reward for it. And trying to convince her that she gave birth to a baby she knows she didn't give birth oh. to. Oh, also, no, this is what happens. No, the baby this is, what happens. is months old. You can't say a nine-month-old looks like a newborn baby. I know, because they already have the baby before she shows up. Yeah. Here's the difference. To no, th- there is a bit in this. Okay, I'll explain. Because yes. if it's the baby is stillborn, then they simply wrap it up, rush it away, and then go, look, it returned from the afterlife and has grown a little due to the returning magic. Ah, Here yes, of course, the returning magic. <laughs> I, I, no, I do think that was their plan. They would take it to a room and be like, oh, upon our holy, holy altar, it has returned to us. Here you go. But if they were only trying to trick her and no one else speaks to her, she could literally just be locked in a room and no one would ever know. It's not yeah. like her dad's coming to visit. 
Yeah, a little silly. A little silly. It's like they're trying to be both nice and convoluted. It's like, oh, we want them to think this. I'm like, you don't actually have to trick them. You don't care what they think, as shown by your other actions. Mm -hmm. So the conspiracy does fall down. But I will tell you now, that only bothered me afterwards. During the time, I was cool. No, that confused me the whole time I was doing it. But also, here's a question. So when they're like, the God King, they're going to pass his powers on. They're going to like, she says, you're going to kill him. And they said, no, 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 we'll just pass the powers on and then he can leave. And uh, and he just goes about and he lives his own life. And she said, but he'll die without breaths. And they say, no, 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 he'll feed off the supply of breaths, which we've given him and now sustain him. And I went, but he just passed on those breaths. So he only has one left, so he's going to die in a week. Right? Yeah. Where's exactly. he getting the new breaths? Can he, and also they're like, so they... He has his divine breath, so all the turn have one divine breath, That's right. which is like worth, I don't know, 50,000 normal ones. They then consume a breath a week. They also, the God King has like a stockpile of additional 10,000, 100,000 breaths, mm-hmm. um, but they feed him two a week. Yes. So then all the time he's God King, his stockpile goes up, mm-hmm. he consumes the one, but if he hands over his stockpile... Only if he can somehow only hand over the stockpile, but not the extras he was fed, plus the divine, Which could he can't. keep living. That's very clear in the book. Uh, exactly. When you hand over um, breath, it's all or nothing. Or the, Unless part of their magic secret way that a mute person can hand over breath involves a... Uh, and yes, sire, and this is how you hold over just 10,000 and no, not all that of doesn't them. make. But also, that doesn't make any sense either, because the point of the scene is supposed to make you think, oh, the priests aren't actually the bad guys, Blue Fingers are the bad guys, and so for this, we now have to disarm them. We now have to make them think, oh no, they were no threat at all at any time. In fact, they were never going to kill him. But if you send him away with a thousand breaths, he's going to die at some point. He's an yeah. immortal. If you don't take away his breaths, he lives forever. If you take him away, he eventually dies. They're still killing him. You're still picking when he's going to die to a calendar week. Like, they know exactly. exactly. And also, um, why can't he ever see his dad? His dad apparently then must be kicking That's it up right. in a little beachside cottage this whole time. And his Where granddad. Where are the other God kings? And his, gra- yeah. and his dad. It's a little and his commune. Dad. Down the just, oh my god, they just have a holiday resort. <laughs> I I know. So when I think through the actual structure of the plot, I do think like, nah, they're probably lying. But that's not the intention of the scene. And it, no. oh, The point of the oh scene is to make it clear that, oh no, you were looking in the wrong place before because there's this one line in a book, which I wrote down for unrelated reasons, but it, it it's very notable. Let, let it out. All right, so there's a scene when... um. When Vasha and Vivenna are meeting with a priest, and Vivenna makes this snide note about the priest owning a mansion. Oh, I guess he's not really like a charitable man. And Vasha goes on this brief rant about actually he inherited the place, um, and like he doesn't earn any of his own money, so you know he just uses his wealth to help other people. And it's like, holy, sh- holy ne- neoliberalism, Batman. Why did you feel so obliged to, to, to go on this rant defending a man for being wealthy? Uh, that, was, that was super weird. But then he does this line. Priests are always easy to blame. They make convenient scapegoats. After all, 
Anyone with strong faith different from your own must either be a crazy zealot or a lying manipulator. Yeah. That's him showing his hand. That's his wink-wink, nudge-nudge for people reading the second time. That he's saying, aha, you are bigoted against priests. You are naturally inclined to suspect them, and that blinds you to the possibility that other people are suspicious. Now, I will fully concede that I was deceived by Bluefingers, but no, everything in the book is hammering home, don't trust the priests, even Blushweaver thinks she's working for the God King's priests. It's not fair to say it's you being judgmental of priests and people of other religions that makes you so suspicious. No, Brandon, it was you. You did it. He does it, and like I said with Blushweaver, she thinks she's working with the priest. It, even if you want to go with, oh no, the head priest was still was good, there were clearly still some priests in the ranks who were not. No, I, I don't think that's true. I think you are supposed to believe that they are all Bluefingers people. Hmm. What are they from again? Ponkal? Ponkal. Ponkal, yes. that's right. Which is a third kingdom, which I'm glad we're mentioning now. So mm-hmm. the, the grand scheme here is that the Bluefingers, who's from Punkar, a third kingdom, is trying to spark a war between Idrian and Haladrin and basically let them knock each other about and then move in and expand themselves later. That's the general tone of the plan. It's not a bad plan. It's going quite well, actually. No, I agree. And I think it is like a decent twist, basically, to be like, oh, there's a third power, which you knew as a reader was out there, but you didn't ask enough questions about... I think that's reasonable enough as a twist. What I did find a bit of issue with his plan, I, I want to get... All right, there's two more things I want to just rant about and then we can move to the happy endings. Sure. Uh, number one, his plan fails because he's like, take the high god king away and kill him somewhere else and I will take the queen away and kill her somewhere else. It's like, just stab them both here and move the bodies later. Classic James Bond move. <laughs> but he's like, I want you to die upon the high altar and I'm like... Well, kill her and then move the body to the high altar. That's so I don't true. think the forensics are going to f- be confused. That's so true. <laughs> um, so that was my main thing. Yeah. Again, enjoyable climax. Um, do you want to talk quickly about Light Song's ending and then we'll go to our final critique? I think Light Song's ending uh, is strong and I figured it out about 400 pages earlier. I definitely knew he was going to give his life at the end. For sure. I personally suspected it would actually be for Siri, but oh well. No, right as I soon as I wrong. as soon as I realized the God King had no tongue, I was like, Oh, Lightung's gonna give him his tongue. So I felt very satisfied oh, with that. I, I don't think that. that's a knock against the book, by the way. I think it's well set up and I think that's actually a really satisfying part of the book. Um I also thought Light Song's High Priest and his rant and his talk and I thought was actually when it talks about like the pros of faith. Uh, that one was the one that really worked for me. Yeah, I agree. I love the fact that Light Song always doubt himself. And it's, it's, it's High Priest is just there like, I don't care what you think about yourself. You've always been my God. I've always believed in you mm-hmm. since before. Like, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the fact that it's not about what... It was never about what Light Song thought. Light Song has always been like, oh, I'm not really a God. And it's just like, doesn't matter. He thinks you are. And that's real enough to him. So, really like that moment. Okay, the God King gets his tongue back. We have a romance story between the God King and Siri, and the whole point is about yeah, communication. Yeah, French kiss, like they do in France. 
And this is when I was just like, Brandon Sandin, why didn't you give us an extra chapter? The fact of the matter is, yeah, it's so bizarre. The love story was my favourite part of this book. That third of the novel was Agreed. the absolute best. And for some weird reason, he chooses to end this book on Vivian for reasons yeah. and not on Siri and the God King. Why? Like, he gets his tongue back and then proceeds not to have a conversation with his love interest. I know. I know. He says, like, a single sentence to her, I think. Like, his, his getting his tongue back is purely a mechanism for him to gain access to his phenomenal powers. But there's no scene where she's like, will this change things between us? Are you going to send me back to Idris now that you're the true king? And he goes... No, my darling, I will love you forever. I'm so <laughs> it doesn't sound like that in a book, but that's how he said it. I just wanted this cute little moment where Siri has to respond to him having a voice and just have a little bit like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Or just something like... Exactly. And then, um, yeah, because ultimately I want this story to end with them going on to be just rulers of Alandran and living happily forever after. And like, mm-hmm. I, I think it, that does happen, but I kind of wanted just it to be said on the page, please. Yeah, exactly. Like, you need something to be like, and now, and now what happens? And now, we change the city for the better. This is what my voice sounds like in Geordie's version of the audiobook. A version I'm sure we'd all love to listen to, especially when it comes to just, like, fresh critiques, if you go along. <laughs> you just have to just, <laughs> just break off and rant. Like, that is a... So, amazingly, like, uh, ages and ages and ages ago, there was this uh, manga I was reading called Suicide Island, and and it wasn't an official translation. It was a naughty, illegal one online, but it was never, ever going to get published in English, so, you know, who cares? And at a certain point in it, the person who was translating the story would just end each chapter with a little rant about how much he hated the story... And like you said, like, this sucks. I can't believe I'm still doing this. And people in the comment section for each chapter would be like, fucking hell, this translator needs to shut up. What a buzzkill. And I I was one of those people because he was a real jerk about it. But then I got to the final chapter and I was like, and this guy was like, that's it. I finished it. I'm done. Never ask me to do this again. And I wrote a comment being like, you know what? This guy hated this story by the end. He didn't like it at all. I really liked this story. So thank you for continuing to translate it for people like me who enjoyed it when you couldn't stand it. I really appreciate that. I like that. And do you know what? I really respect people who don't put on a facade of enjoying their job sometimes. I there's, mm. a, there's a level of like, yeah, this sucks. Let's not pretend otherwise. It's good to know that when Duncan gets sick of his podcast, he'll let us know. Oh, you will know. Um... And then that kind of leads in then. So that was kind of a weak emotion lending. And that's why we end on Vasha. Uh, I keep calling her Vivian. Is that actually her name? Uh, Viv- yeah, yeah. Viv- Vivena. Vivena. Vivena, yeah. <laughs> um, it's very silly fantasy names. Like no one in the book has a proper name and that's on purpose. Like, you know, he's obviously... T- I'm sure this is probably true for his other books, right? Everyone has a made-up fancy name because he doesn't want anyone to be associated with, like, a particular culture. Oh, yeah. Kelsia, Vin, um, Kaladin, all all that good stuff. Yeah. The most character with the most normal name in this is Siri, and that's a nickname. Um, but, yeah, we kind of end on those two. And I was just there, like, I wasn't invested in you guys. Sorry. 
They're like, no, we will take Night Song and go off and be adventurers on the high road. It will be a tough life. And Vivenna's like, I want the tough life now. Let's go. And I'm like, okay, have fun. Um, and I hate to break it to you, Geordie, but Brandon Sentin has said the title of the next book will be Night Song. And it will be following yeah, predominantly. I mean, I'm not going to read that fucking book. Vivenna and Vasha chasing down the other kind of older returned in the world. Yeah. So, at a certain point in the book, it turns out that, like, Vasha is not just a return, but, like, the ancient ants. No, no, da- T and um, Denth are, like, super returned from godly god gods, extra gods from, like, ages ago. And they, um, they're, and they're, they're the progenitors of her royal line. Oh, we never mentioned the color, the hair, the color changing hair. Uh, that was, it was pretty good. It was, it was a nice feature. Anyway, and um, it's just thrown at you in the last like three chapters, and you're like, whoa, fictional whiplash. It is. It comes out. I felt relatively out of nowhere. Um, also, so it's, it's Night Blood, not Night Song. The Blade. Got that wrong earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I felt that was. It just felt like a lot. This is the thing. I didn't hate reading this book. I like how Brandon Sanderson writes, to be honest. And I really had an experience reading this book where I'd read like 10 pages and then all of a sudden I would have read like 60 and it really flew by for me. Um, mm. cause it's quite easy, the prose. But there was just a lot I feel like I can critique in this one, which I couldn't do in his some of his other works. Or at least the other works had enough interesting stuff going on that I didn't mind it as much. I'll tell you what's an important aspect of this book. It's the fact that the characters are so straightforward in, like, the way they compose themselves that when a scene starts and you know what's, like, the setup for the scene, you basically know exactly what they're going to do in every single part of the scene. You know, like, when you have Tong Fa and, and um, Denth and Vivenna in a scene, and once you know who they're speaking to, you can kind of guess everything they're going to say. Especially light saw. Like you just you just know because they're so they never really branch out from what you expect of them. No, it's I personally felt maybe a little less with Venna, uh, but definitely with Light Song. It's less than having like a a character arc, but more you are going to go on this journey and you're going to learn a lesson. And once you have learnt your lesson, you will turn into character two. Or your character or it's the end of the book. do, do you kinda of get that feel? I do, I do, I do. Before we go then, I just one other little aspect of this, which I would love to kind of hear your take. Sure. This is part of the Cosmere, Geordie. And uh, some characters in this do cross over. Do you want to guess who? I'm going to assume it's like uh, Vasher and Denth, right? These weirdos. So, is it Ostra? That would make sense. He's, a, he's like God-God. He... Okay. Really, uh, this is, I'm going to say, there's not really spoiler territory, but I'm just going to let some things slip away. Yes, there is a fan feed that Vasha does appear in Stormlight Archives under another name. Mm. And completely other names, but there's reference in that that a character uses certain powers and people are like, that must be Vasha. But the most direct one was um, Hoid. Was who? Hoid. I, what name are you saying? (laughs) H-O-I-D. Hoyt. Hoyt. You know, the storyteller who had the sand. What What the fuck are you talking about? Are you making this up? 
Siri asked Lightsong to get her storyteller to tell oh. her the history of the land. Yeah. That storyteller, who was kind of ageless and learnt his storyteller technique in far off and distant lands, crosses over all the books. That character is so inconsequential to my experience of the book that I did not remember him. I don't remember Sand. I barely remember that scene. You know what? Maybe I shouldn't have done this on a hike because all I really remember from the time I was reading that section of the book was how much my shoulders hurt. <laughs> Well, that's a little. That's the little way. And this character shows up. He always shows up and say name, and he always tells a story by like sprinkling sand. And it's never explained how he's a world hopper or how old he is. He's just that lovely Easter egg. <laughs> Crossovers are fun. Um, Warbreaker is, as a fan of Brandon Sanderson, which I am. How is this is regarded? Not in the Brandon most... Sanderson space. To be honest, it's basically regarded quite near the bottom, just one above Elantris. Yeah. Um, but I actually would swap them. I preferred Elantris. Um, if you're new to Brandon Sanderson and you don't know where to start, please just read the first Mistborn book, Final Empire. That That is the right answer. I'm sorry, Geordie. It's just I didn't want to do a reread. And people told me this was good because I like Elantris. So when people told me this is better than Elantris, I went, well, that's good enough. Turns out wasn't quite the case for us people, but... I still would recommend this to you if you've already read all the rest of Brandon Sanderson. There we go. Do that first. Be, be a completionist. Yeah, you know, um, bearing the totality of this book and saying that ultimately putting all the pieces together, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. You know, that being my review, personally, I think that book should be better than fine. And... Just pick a different book. Just I'm inclined in to in your library and you pick off this one, you go, hmm, hmm, just put it back. It's not worth the time. Uh, at the end of the day, there's enough great fiction out there to possibly take up a lifetime. You don't need to read too much fine fiction. And even with this author, there is better work. So if you want to step into Brandon Sanderson or if you're a fan of Brandon Sanderson, enjoy his other works. I do still recommend Brandon Sanderson. I just recommend Final Empire. Unfortunately, Duncan is ruined forever. Um, my my taste in him is sullied and now he will, we will always have to overcome this burden. Oh, I'm sure he can rise to the challenge, maybe. I'm actually not sure, but we will try one day. Yeah. We'll give you a little break first. So, Geordie, what do you want to read now? Uh, I think first and foremost that... There's a lot of Brandon Sanderson's fans out there, and maybe some of them are kind of mad at us right now. So let's hear some of your opinions on Warbreaker. Do you have anything to say in its defense? Do you say, like, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's definitely the wrong starting point for Brandon Sanderson, in which case, what would the appropriate starting point be? And you can reach out to us on Instagram, where we are Is This Just Fantasy Podcast, or out to us on our email at isvisciousfantasypodcast at gmail.com. Duncan, did I do it right? You did it absolutely right, mate. Well done. Yes, um, yes! Do follow us on Instagram for, obviously, updates of when the new episode's coming out. Also, other little posts about what we've been up to. I recently did one where I... Some of the books I skimmed over at the start of this episode. I've done more detailed reviews on them oh, over on the Instagram, so do check it out. Yeah, I should do the same. Uh, i got a lot to say about... I also about, took a fun um, trip to Middle Earth the other day, and uh, that uh, post will be going out about that as well. You went to New Zealand? It was amazing. No, uh, the Magic of Middle Earth. It was a museum exhibition here in the UK oh. where they had all, like edition one of the hobbit but they had it was it was a really great sick, sick. see the instagram post don't you worry i don't go on instagram <laughs> i'm trying to cut back on all social media 
Probably for the best. Yeah. So while you're cutting back on social media, take it you're going to be reading a book. Okay, so next time, uh, I've, I've, I've been meaning to revisit this book for a while because um, I have an interesting relationship with a series, especially its sequel. We'll have to see if Duncan is interested in checking out the sequel, but I know I wanted to do this on the podcast for a while, so I'm going to be revisiting and taking Duncan with me this time, Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi. Duncan, you know anything about this book? I know nothing about this book. It sounds like A Court of Thorns and Roses yes, by the tempo yes, of the it, title. It does. The tempo is... <laughs> it's almost like Shakespearean iambic pentameter. It's very predictable. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Children of Blood and Bone, from Blood and Ash, uh, Sisters of Silence and Sorrow, uh, Crown of Thunder and Are these all real? No, I'm making these up now. Uh, some of us are real. Okay. <laughs> uh, looking forward to it, mate. Something a little bit new. Daughter of War and Shadows. So, catch up with you in a fortnight to discuss Children of Blood and Bone. Bone, yes. Sword blood of blood and bone. Fuck, that was terrible. <laughs> Empire of day and night. Oh, yeah, now we're getting somewhere. See? See? It's easy, mate. Yeah. We should do a competition. We should do We should do one when you're like real or fake. Yes. Play oh, my God, we so should. All right, that might be a mini episode. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> all right, everyone, catch you next time. Catch you next time. That's all from me, Duncan Nickel. And me, Jordy Bay. That's not how we do the outro. Bye. <laughs>